I'm Marcus Brown. This is a Runner's Life podcast. This is a platform for richer conversations that explore the person behind the runner. I discuss the topics that influence us as runners locally, whilst concurrently connecting us to the wider global community. If you found value in the show, please subscribe and share with your community on social media and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or the platform selected as it helps the podcast grow. If you want to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash a runner's life. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's head to the conversation. Hi, John. Welcome back to a runner's life podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me back on, Marcus, and congratulations. Thank you. For those that have listened to the podcast before, I've had my coach on, we were in episode one, talking about how to manage training during lockdown. And the second episode, which has been really popular and really well received, was discussing uh, how to go sub three. And obviously, I was asking a lot of questions that I really want to know myself because I think it was it was a goal that we've been working towards you know, in the last few years, especially last year in particular. <laughs> it's finally happened finally done it so we obviously with your help and uh, it's great to to sort of sit back and reflect I did the first episode on this series where I was basically rambling on like I am now saying how I felt about the race and this one I really want to get a bit more context and speak to you and just take a broader look really and sort of consider some of the elements that I might not have seen and just talk about what we're the, re- the rationale and what we're going to do next yeah absolutely yeah, yeah far away then yeah yeah, so we'll firstly, we'll start with the build-up. Let's talk about the overview of the training block, which really was a little bit unorthodox. Yeah, it was indeed. Uh, it, it was completely different because originally the plan was going to be to run London, even though it's, it was on the same day, the plan was to run London. But I remember talking to you in the sort of mid-summer and explained to you that I'd had some contacts in Kenya that told me that London wasn't going to go ahead and it was actually going to be uh, an elite-only race. But you were kind of hanging on like everybody else was waiting to to hear that finalized. So in my mind, I didn't want to build you up and uh, to have it taken away from you again, you know, like another marathon build up. Um, so I was keeping you ticking along, really, and maintaining fitness and getting ready to move up if we had to. Um, it transpired, though, that you found uh, this marathon and it was around, I think, I think if I'm right, around the same time that London was cancelled or... Uh, you had it as a backup plan at least for a couple of weeks before. So we were able to then to make that transition into the marathon training. And we knew that this was going to go ahead because you'd spoken to the organisers. And unless something catastrophic happened, it, it was going to go ahead. So we uh, we had a short shorter of amount of time to build to to get into it and had to approach it a little bit differently. Yeah, That's what my f- training sort of felt like towards the end of the summer. It was f- you're sort of feeling like you're tiptoeing around the marathon build-up because obviously it requires a lot. So you know it's only a, a well you can probably go into a couple of times during the year you can't just keep jumping into it and staying there for the whole year could just burn out and that's how it felt to me anyways yeah absolutely you, you, you you're dead on there because you can't um ideally in in a year you want one maximum two marathon build-ups if you're going to do it properly really one as we've as we discussed in the in the previous uh episode about breaking free it's it does take a lot out of the body um and through the summer, you've been training well anyway. Uh, ran the 10-mile, 10K specific work. Your speed was there. And we kept in touch with your endurance. So all it needed really was just a, a little shift of emphasis towards the endurance side of things. Um, and then that, I knew that was going to be enough for you to get under quite comfortably. And I think, as we mentioned, sometimes during our chats uh, 
weekly chats, whatever, that uh, on any given Sunday, you were probably capable of running a sub three if as long as the endurance was there. And, and I think we, we achieved that with, you know, a few months, a few weeks to go. And it was more a matter of making sure that you weren't overcooked and doing too much and just maintaining the fitness, really, and then tweaking it just towards the end. Before I jump into the weeks leading up to uh, Dorney Lake Marathon, I just want to go back to just this uncertainty of the year and just get your thoughts on how you've tried to manage it with the athletes that you coach and even just moving forward because no one really knows when races are going to properly resume because you get them coming and then they go away and then you get smaller ones popping up and then they go away. It's a crazy time. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great a great point, and uh, obviously I'm learning as I go as well because this is something new. But I think, as I mentioned in uh, in both the previous podcasts, for a coach, this time is kind of perfect, and you can see, and that's evidenced in some of the world records we're seeing at the moment as well, and how well some of the top athletes are performing. Because what we're having now is we have complete blocks of training where we can build without the interruption of races, so you can layer training on gradually. Um, and that's what we've been doing uh, in, in our group with nearly everybody in it. That said, um, a number of races have been cancelled when people are getting built up and they thought they were going to have a race and it was taken away. We've had that with the elites in the group through beginners. Um, so, And I obviously have to manage that with them on an individual basis as well. And it's difficult. Uh, a really good example of that at one end of the spectrum is Aoife Cook who's looking to go to the Olympics. She doesn't know if the Olympics are going to happen, and nor do I. So we're trying to plan that. She's been invited to run in the Valencia Marathon, which is going to be a little bit like London the other week, where it's elite only. Um, so, And we haven't got a lot of time to build up to that. It was, I think, 11 weeks from the start. But we also weren't 100% certain that she was in. So she, we started doing the training, and there was no confirmation letter came back, and we were two weeks into the build-up, and we were panicking a little bit. So we're trying to work out how do we manage this uh, so that we don't end up getting injured if the or Eva doesn't get injured if she ended up not being in the race or if it's cancelled. But actually, we we're talking the other day and confirmation came through while we were talking, so that was a relief. But it shows at that end, you know, even with, with somebody like Eva who's looking to run in a race that we probably think will go ahead, it could still be taken away. And then on on a basic and today I had about seven messages saying that the Malaga Marathon's cancelled. Obviously, they've come out with that. So a lot of the people who are more in what I would call like the intermediate level uh, are, you know, have had that taken away from them. And that was in December time as well. So it's now how we manage that process. And to me, it's pretty simple. You stay, no, nothing ha has really changed. You can go out and you can run and you can train and get fitter. And the best way to do that when there's not a race on the horizon is, as I said in the very first podcast, to work in that 10-mile area so working between 10K, 10 mile and a half marathon, if you're training in there, it's the safest place to train in and you can continue to improve. It's a wide range of workouts that you can do. The training is enjoyable. It's not too stressful. It's not like where you're training for 5K where it's very intense. It's not like the marathon where it's long and you have to go out for hours and put in the big, big miles and big tempo runs. So it's, it can be an enjoyable time, but it's also fruitful if it's managed correctly and the runners will improve. And within the group, like I'd say 95% of my runners who have been working that area from February to now have been PBing in time trials and in training. And when races come along, they're, P they're PBing. So I think that's kind of the way people should look at this for the next six months or so. I, if, if I, you know, if I were still competing now and running, I'd be saying to myself, okay, for the next six months, what I want to try and do is improve my half marathon, my 10 mile and my 10K times and do it 
care. There's no in, there's no there's no rush. There's no urgency. Just layer the training on and just keep working away. Monday's still going to be Monday, and Friday's still going to be Friday. So let's just go out and do the runs and get the work done. Um, there's no need to back off or go crazy or do mad things that you wouldn't normally do. I saw a lot of elite level runners doing some absolutely bonkers stuff with lockdowns and uh, you know press up challenges and all these sorts of things. They end up getting injured and their then their training's gone askew. But then quietly behind the scenes, some runners have been working hard. Like Laura Whiteman, for example, is a great example. And look how she's come out of the the last six months. You know, she's head and shoulders the best middle middle long distance runner in in the uk at the moment and one of the top in the world is competing with the kenyans and the ethiopians so just if you get your head on and accept what's going on around you now and just control the things that you can control like your training then it should be okay it could be a fruitful time yeah i think the focus side is such a crucial part i think that's something i learned this year i think after the first london marathon announcement that april was going to happen I think I had a bit of a wobble and then I think from then I was fine. I think we then did some time trials, cracked on, got PBs in those uh, distances and then moved on to, to this. And I just sort of, it was a good reminder for me that just to focus on like what you can control and don't be too worried about races because like once your races do come back, like if you're on that sort of holding position, it's like you're like a plane just sort of circling to land you just stay in that place you know that at some point you're going to get clear it's the land and then you can just jump straight into it which which we more or less did really with i think like four or five weeks to go for the marathon that's a perfect analogy they have plane circling waiting to land and that and that's i suppose in a way exactly how you were as the way you described it there we were just it, it wasn't too difficult to uh, come in and land so to speak you know for me uh, out of all of the previous build-ups even though you worked i would suggest uh harder in the three previous ones like manchester berlin and new york the build-ups were you know a lot more typical of a marathon build-up this one was more maintaining and it it just seemed that it, unless something crazy happened like you had a chicken risotto or something like that then it was it was a, it was a given that you were going to come in in sub free so i was very very confident of it and very relaxed and without jumping the gun either until i saw the tracker but we'll come back to that later i suspect <laughs> oh yeah so the last uh, four or five weeks was a little bit unorthodox uh, as we've talked about and there were a lot of runs i think we were building towards a sort of tempo pace and we were trying to work out what that pace was and for me i think that gave me a lot of confidence i mean you can never be like 100 percent confident of anything but i think having those runs i think definitely was a switch i think for me in this cycle going forward yeah i mean i remember the sitting down and thinking about it and chatting to you um we had a, a couple of choices we could really, really go for it and say, okay, let's try and run something like around a 248, 247, somewhere around there. Or we could go for a 252, 254, or we could go for just trying to like nip under the under the three hours. Uh, I think the 245 area was probably a little bit out of reach because we didn't have enough time to do a full build-up. That would have required the you know a full 12, 16-week specific build-up. I think the choice was, I think, to, just to break free to nip under in 259, wasn't ambitious enough and based on where your fitness was. And I, I think we, we called it right to look for that 252, 254 area. And given the weather conditions, I think your, your, your run was actually probably in and around, worth a 254, 253, somewhere in and around there anyway. And the way that we, the effort that was involved to, to actually get there in the final stages 
whilst you had to obviously go out and do the long runs, it wasn't quite the same as a normal massive build-up. That said, when we were looking at the runs and how to get there and pick the pace, what I, I remember the conversation we were having is like, what should we go for? 6.15, 6.30, 6.50. So we said what we'd do is we'd, we'd built your long run up and we started off, I think, with eight, like a, a two-mile warm-up, 18 miles at around about seven pace or 7.10 pace and then a two-mile cool down. And then each week, we increased the pace of that run rather than changing it, which is something I've never done before. Uh, but I thought it would work because I knew you had the necessary speed to run in around sort of the 250, 255 area. So we didn't need to work too much on that. And the emphasis was put onto the longer run with the short amount of time we had, because I thought just if we could develop the endurance side of it, then you'd be okay. So we reduced the, or the time each week. So we went from like 710, 7, 6.50, 6.40, 6.30. And we, I remember when we got to 6.30, we both felt that that was about the right sort of area for you to work in at, at that time. And as it transpired, it, we, we, I think we got it right. Yeah, I mean, looking back at the last uh, three attempts last year, I mean, did you sort of see any differences from the runner i was then to the run i was approaching dorney lake marathon oh that's a good question um yes definitely and in fact since february this year because i think if if things had gone if covid hadn't come along i think you would probably have gone well under three hours in april and again i mean all things being equal but what i've noticed you're much more relaxed uh you weren't overthinking things uh and taking things a little bit more in stride, you've accepted that you know the necessary, the necessary. It's necessary for you to take rest days to fit in with your life as well. So we were taking a rest day once every two weeks. But if you remember previously, you know you were keen not to take rest days, and that's something you've learned, you know, to 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 incorporate, and that it is actually part of the training. That it wasn't necessarily about doing eighty miles a week in peak, you know, or in those key times, and not panicking about if. It, if a session didn't go to plan in the past, if something hadn't gone to plan, you would be pretty disappointed. But you've learned now that that's part of the process is sessions don't go to plan all of the time. and You don't always hit the paces. It's how you respond to that and how you manage around the, the you know the, the future sessions. So, for example, if we had, had a workout and you hadn't been able to hit the hit it because it was windy in the past, you were sort of being you had been doubting yourself, whereas now you would say, OK, just move on and we'll do the run on the weekend. And you can just see it in the comments and your feedback is, yeah, okay, I didn't quite run uh, at 6.30 pace for the 18 miles. It was 6.35. But given the weather, I think it was worthy of a 6.25. And you're able to assess things in a different way now. A much more comfortable and confident runner, definitely, this time around. Yeah, and I think towards the end, we was doing like the 18 miles at 6.30 pace. And, you know, that was giving me a lot of confidence. So it's just like, it's almost as thinking like, this is, it sounds ridiculous, but I was going into the marathon thinking it was just going to be, another Sunday run because it's more or less what I've done in the training just a little bit further it's not anything that completely different to me that I've not done or got an idea of what's going to come up well that that, that was exactly the idea or the whole goal of it was to treat it almost like a training run um, and with the the two mile warm-up and a two mile cool down on either side of it and the consistency of those 18 or eight, 18 miles at that speed or in and around that speed with the extra four miles, you're getting 22 milers in plus your weekly mileage in the session in the week. I knew of a taper that when you were running 6.30 that you'd be able to hold it anyway. Um, and based on the years that you've had before, you know, the the, the three previous build-ups. So for me, this was a very relaxed at attempt at a sub-three with no pressure, uh, very, very confident 
in, uh, apart from a kit, there was a, unless there was a massive storm, uh, you would you would go, you'd go under three quite comfortably. Um, and even with and that allowed for room for things to go wrong. Maybe if you paced it slightly wrong, you know, if you got the pacing a little bit out, or you had some issues like some niggles and things, I still felt that you would you'd get under. And again, I think uh, you know, obviously you had a little bit of stomach uh, upset, but you you were able to work through that and still get come through, come home comfortably. Yeah, so we're going to move on to the race and because we've spoken a little bit about the race strategy based on the four or five weeks working the pace, finding what's comfortable, then we agreed that pace. And the idea really was to kind of hold that for, I think, up to 20 and then just kick on. But um, as as the day well transpired, um, weather conditions were pretty, pretty tough. I think we had like southwest winds, so generally I was getting crosswinds for the first two laps then it changed direction and I was getting headwinds for the last two laps and and you know it's like when you're running to wind you're you've got to use more effort to hold the same pace so I was end up I think you're doing more work towards the end obviously when you're more fatigued as well yeah and that, that, these I mean there are a few things in there what you were saying and, and there were things we addressed if we if we sort of isolate them and start with the wind the wind is the hardest thing in the marathon. If you've got a windy day, you, you, there's not an, an awful lot that you can do about it, apart from accept that it's going to be there and realise you're going to be in for a tough day because it's not easy running into a headwind. And if you have a tailwind and a headwind and it's equally shared, mm. it doesn't mean that you can make make up the time. You can't because when you're running into a headwind, you're using more glycogen for a start. And that's one of the, the key ingredients of running a good marathon is being able to sort of manage your glycogen stores along with pace. They're the two things, main things anyway. So the wind is a problem in that regard. So what you have to try to do is keep the effort consistent as opposed to the pace. Um, and we spoke about that. You know, if it, if you're running into wind to, to jump in behind other people, even though it's not uh, sportsman-like, but it didn't matter. There was too much at stake. You had to go under three this time. So if you were running with other people to, you know, to to, to take the ride, and it was a race as well, uh, because there was a strong possibility you were going to be involved in in, in the, the front end of this, with it being a smaller marathon as opposed to something like Boston or New York. So that was one part of it, and um, and the other part, as you rightly say as well, or said rather, is. It's about getting to 20 miles and feeling like it's comfortable. So for you, getting to 20 at whatever pace and saying this is just a training run and just sitting there and switching off and then starting to work, that was the other plan. But because of the wind, you weren't quite able to do that. And this is something we addressed as well, is that if something came up that we weren't prepared for, is that you have enough experience now to know how to manage it and deal with it on the fly, you know, on the day when you're running along, think to yourself, okay, what do I need to do? And, and and that's what you did. You had a few challenges and you used your experience to overcome those challenges and get the best out of yourself on the day. And I remember one of the things he said to me beforehand was with the wind, just, if it happens, just float through it. And I was always thinking to myself, like when I was getting a headwind, I was just like, you're relaxed, just you're floating, do you know what I mean? Rather than fighting it. Um, and that was a sort of a little of a mantra that was kind of coming in my head. But that race was so competitive. I mean, I still came like 131st of over 500 people so you could sort of see how competitive it was because there's not a lot of races happening so there were a lot of good runners uh running that day and uh, some great results with the weather um as we said obviously the rain the wind and another challenge i had as well was um starting to feel slightly sick uh nauseous um i think around about mile 14 
obviously I made sure there was no chicken risottos, kept all my meals plain <laughs> through the week. Uh, so there's no sauces, nothing. Um, and it's just one of those things you're sort of going through and it's like, man, this is just absolutely crazy. Um, and it's a weird thing because you're trying to manage that balance of um, giving enough effort to maintain the pace but not push too hard that you're sick. And then also trying to remember to also fuel. Because I remember I did this in New York where I started to feel a bit sick towards the end and I was like, stop taking my, my gels. And that's like pretty much game over. Once you stop fueling, you get to a point where, you know, <laughs> you start hitting the wall and it's just a real upwards battle. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you saw... Uh the highlights because obviously you were running at the same time of London afterwards but something that was noticeable was Kipchoge stopped taking his drinks uh, near the end of the race and I think it was in the last six miles I spotted it straight away when others were taking the drinks and he wasn't and Kipchoge is extremely disciplined and doesn't normally do that you know he's always on, when he broke two, the broke two hours he was, he was having his drinks more than he would normally have them in a, in a race it's very very important it's, it's key um, so if you can still manage to take your drinks without being sick, uh, it's important because if you don't, you're going to run out of fuel. You're going to run out, of, well, not necessarily run out of glycogen, but you're going to slow down substantially. So it's, it's very, very important. Um, at that point where Kipchoge dropped off in the race, the others were drinking and taking their drinks and Kipchoge wasn't. And that's exactly where within a minute he was gone. He was kicked out the back. So for you, you did the right thing there, although the nausea was kicking in. You were able to sip and managing and, and, and get some fuel into you. And, you know, we've from most of the race or half the race still to go or just under half the race still to go. That was important because if you hadn't, you wouldn't have had the fuel, the energy reserves there to get, to get through and get it done. It's such a weird thing to think back at rationally because at the time you just make the best decision. But the option was re either hit the wall later or be sick. And I was like, what's worse? <laughs> <laughs> or not be sick. So it's just like all those sort of things you're trying to manage in your in your head. Whereas I think at previous races, when it's happened before, you just, it really gets in your mind and you just, you you go for, you just stop or you slow down or you, you just take what you think is the easiest option rather than thinking what's the best option to get me to the end. Yeah, I, I think, you know, on the day, you've just got to work it out. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. And that's part of the learning process and the experience. And I've, as I've heard you say many times, you know, about the marathon, it owes you nothing um, and it's a beast and lots can go wrong. When it goes right, it's great. And for a lot of people, it goes wrong a lot of times. So what you have to try to do is lower that risk of things going wrong. Um, and I, I think you had that all prepared. You were, everything was lined up for it. And it, either side of things going right or wrong, it, the, the variables weren't too wide. So if something went wrong, it was unlikely to be something major given on the day because we had accounted or taken in for the wind and the weather we, and the pacing and things. So if you were going to get your pacing wrong, it would have been too far out. So the key things you were able to keep within sort of the tram lines of making sure that you got under the sub three. And, and, and again, that was evidence in what happened on the day. Yeah. Um, and a couple of things that actually happened as well. Like I was wearing the alpha flies and I know I actually had one comment during the race. <laughs> oh, there's one of those alpha fly runners. And I was thinking in my head, I was like a bit like, shoes do certain bits but then you still got to train for the for the marathon you can't just put on magic shoes and then just expect <laughs> results that you've not trained for yeah again this this is a a really interesting subject and uh i'm 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 probably in a different place to a lot of people on the shoes 
Um, you, there seems to be two camps. There's a camp of people saying that the shoes shouldn't be allowed because it's cheating. And uh, okay, and then they say, yeah, but it's acceptable in terms of the technology of the modern day, but you can't then compare times with people in the past. Then you've got people who are just saying, yeah, it's okay to wear the shoes, you know, and, and regardless of what the past is, this is just how it is now. For, for me, I'm surprised at how many coaches, how many elite level runners and how many sports journalists, especially athletics journalists, are missing what's actually really going on here. And they are, because I've not seen it written about anywhere. It's not the shoes. It's the shoes and the fuel combined that's doing it. The shoes aren't the reason why people are running faster. It's the shoes with the fuel. And just to, to sort of to explain that a little bit or expound on it is that up until a couple of years ago, at around the same time that the shoes came out, um, most people would be taking one or two gels per hour max in a, in a marathon. And they were always struggling with GI distress unless they were lucky and they could, they could, ha they could handle it or they'd trained with it. And the science at the time was saying that you could take 60 grams of carbohydrates in an hour, was pretty much the max. Although uh, some of the sports scientists were saying you could train your stomach to take a little bit more. Enter Morton, game changer. More I, For me, more so than the shoes. Um, all of a sudden now you can take 80 grams of carbohydrates without any GI distress. That's a massive increase. And to be able to have that in the armour is one thing. Then the other thing about the shoes. Now, every single person that I'm coaching who wears the shoes, at, at the elite end anyway, are saying the shoes don't the, the, the shoes don't make them faster. And I'll come back and explain that in a minute. But what they do say how the shoes are an advantage is when you get to 20 miles, your legs aren't as beat up. The legs feel a little bit fresher so that you can maintain this. It, it seems a little bit easier to main, maintain the pace over the final six miles or so of a marathon. But you've also got to add into that the reason why the legs are feeling a little bit fresher is because they've been taking on board more fuel as well. So it's the fuel and the shoes combined at 20 miles that keep them fresh, which enable them to maintain the pace or go a lot quicker in those final six miles. Now, if we come back to the shoes and running faster, the people that I'm coaching are not running faster over the half marathon or the 10 miles because of the shoes. They're not running faster in their sessions, their workouts. In fact, Sometimes they run faster in the old shoes in workouts. So for me, I don't believe that the shoes actually make you faster. What I think it is, is about the shoes improve the uh, running economy or the energy return so that you're less fatigued when you get to 20 miles. More so with the Alpha Flies than the Next Percents and the Vaporfly 4%. The, the Alpha Flies are not a half marathon shoe or a 10 mile shoe. They're good for a marathon on a really nice smooth course without too many bends they're designed for just getting down and running and, and keeping in straight lines if you start banging in hills and corners and things i don't think the alpha alpha flies a particularly good shoe the next percent is a very good all-round shoe um but it doesn't it, it doesn't make you run faster i don't think and if you have a look at the 10k world record on the road by ronit skiprutu he wasn't wearing any of the fancy shoes he was just wearing a bog standard adidas shoe so to me, how, do, how does that compare? How do you work that out and say, you know, that, um, you, some people might argue, let's put him in the next percent and he's going to run faster. But for me, I don't think so. And that's deviating from the three hour thing, but it's important as well because you're saying there that you were wearing the shoes, but I don't think the shoes were the reason why you broke three hours. I think it was the years of training and the fueling strategy and how you manage the race on the day. I completely agree with what you're saying. I think there's so many things that make it all work together. It's not just 
you know you don't do the work you put on some magic shoes and then you mysteriously like take 20 minutes of your pb i think there's more to it like for the reasons that you said anyhow enough about the shoes and more about the race one of the biggest challenges of the race was the uh, the chip timing and do you want to sort of say <laughs> your thoughts about that I've got a big, I've got a big bruise on my forehead from headbutting the table. Where uh, I was, I was tracking the race, and uh, it had you off. I was trying to work out what was going on with it, and at halfway, it said you had gone through halfway in one hour of thirty-five. And I was thinking, oh no, he's been on that chicken risotto again. And I was thinking, what on earth could be going wrong this early in the race? And then I thought, I was, you know, I had the London Marathon on in the background, and I saw it was cold and wet and windy. I thought well, it must be awful where he's running. It must just be like constant headwind if he's gone through in one thirty-five. And then at the end, I think it had you finishing in about a three eight or a three ten, and I thought, oh no, you know this is a disaster. <laughs> so, so and then and then I, I then you you dropped the, the the message through to me, you know, with the time. So and then I shouted back about the the tracking, but then it made sense that there, there had been some sort of problem with the tracking. I think maybe what happened was that was the clock from the start of the race, and maybe through the I don't know for the waves going forward. That's the only reason I could sort of think of it. And then they probably put the net time afterwards. But um, it was so strange. You're looking back at it, you're just thinking, 308. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I haven't run a 308 marathon. Uh, no respect to people that run a 308 marathon. But, you know, when you have your watch saying you've run 256, you're thinking there must be some sort of major issue here. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it was pretty obvious. As soon as you sent me the, the thing through, I knew then it was something to do with the timing. And, of course, they were sending people off in waves as well, weren't they? So that would have had something to do with it too. Yeah, that was so interesting to to do that. And obviously it was the London, uh, virtual London as well. So I had two things where I had to start the app, put my phone away. Um, so that was like a minute slower. And then put, you know, all that sort of faff in around. And then I was like waiting to start. So I basically, I kept my T-shirt on to the last moment because I've learned from New York, literally do not throw away your clothes until you're about to cross the start line because you will still be waiting for quite a long time and get cold. So uh, I kind of keep it on to uh, the last minute. Yeah, no, that's very important. Again, you know, is, is, staying, is staying warm right until the very last minute of a race. The last thing you want to do is be expending energy so your body's trying to keep itself warm. So when you got the the text through that I'd, I'd, I'd made it, what was your sort of initial thoughts after obviously <laughs> read the original um, timing from uh, the the chip time? I, I think I, it was a sigh of relief actually more than anything else because uh, obviously you know the way I am about marathon training. I I actually believe that all things being equal, everybody should improve. You know, marathon and marathon within reason till you get to a point where. It's more about sustaining your time. Uh, so, 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 uh, just to put some context on that. Just say like Eva. I believe that Eva's potential is probably to run a two twenty two marathon. I don't think she'll go much faster than that. But when we get her down to twenty two twenty two, we have to try to keep her there, and that's how about you know for a, a good few years, so she can carry on competing in the Olympics. So for you, uh, when you got under the three, it wasn't about okay. Now the job is to sustain it, and I, I know I'm jumping forward a little bit, but it was, it was, I was thinking this at the time about what do we do next? And I was thinking to myself, okay, I know that that two fifty six is worth a two fifty four. So already my head's thinking ahead to the next stage and what we're, where we're going next. So that was part of what was going on, and then it was also uh, how easy was it? Easy was it hard? Were there any problems? Because obviously they they I didn't have that information, so there would be factors that would assess on what the, the race was worth in terms of the way that we trained, because this was a new way of training. I'd never used this type of build-up before with anybody. It was a first. And as a, you know, 
I, I've, I've been pinching a few things that we've done there, which I'm now putting into EFA's training as well. But I, I can talk about that another time. So, but yeah, I gen generally it was a sigh of relief, and I was glad in it for for you that you'd finally got through there, and but now can now kick on and start improving because, as I said, people should be improving marathon on marathon, and you had three goes at breaking three each time there was something unlucky with it and that's the, again the nature of the marathon in terms of your fitness and your training there were all green ticks saying that you should have broken three hours but the marathon doesn't work that way sometimes you know things come along and you were unfortunate in all three of them this time with the shortest build-up on paper you weren't as fit as you were back in those times you know with the, the training that you put in yet you got through comfortably even with with the wind and with issues yeah, it just goes to show that there's no perfect race or perfect day. You just got to manage what uh, comes at you. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we spoke about. You know, was, I think that's one of the final things we said is, you know, if anything goes wrong or there are any challenges, don't panic. Use your experience, think about it and work your way through it. Yeah, I think it just came back to feeling at some points about effort and just doing the best I could at that time. But yeah. Glad that it's uh, done and, and uh, for, for this sort of chapter and uh, I can sort of move forward into the next stage, really. So what's next? What's next post uh, sub three? Yeah, I think if if we weren't having all the, the COVID stuff going on at the moment, it would be have a little rest and then work on, again, improving the 10-mile half marathon time between now and Christmas, sort of early New Year, and then into a marathon in April um where we pick a sort of a time uh, which i'll come back to in a second however with covid it's going to be a little bit more difficult i my, my own thoughts on it are there won't be any major or big marathons at least at the earliest until this time next year and even then we'll be lucky to have the big ones on i think anyway um I think there's more chance of ha having races like what you, which you run in there so like smaller marathons with people going off in waves so yeah, it's it's picking what to do and and where to go with it. And in my opinion, what we should do next is do the first part of that, work away at the 10 mile, 10K, half marathon, because there's still plenty of space for you to grow in those areas and get faster without doing any more work. You don't need to do any more work. The mileage and the number of days that you're training and stuff, that that can all stay the same. It's just the, the structure of the workouts will be a little bit different. Um, work to the, the January, assess what's happening in January regarding COVID and what's going on in the world, and then make a decision. If there, if it's likely that yeah, I'm wrong and that marathons can go ahead in April, then I, I suspect we would target one. If not, then carry on with the training again, working at getting faster over the 10K in the, and the 10 mile and a half marathon into spring, and then extending out from there into the autumn into a marathon. If a marathon is going to come round in April, in terms of a goal based on where you are now this is an interesting one because when people break three hours they get stuck quite often people will get stuck they'll they, they might run 258 259 and then in the next one they might run about 254 or 253 but that's the area where it gets difficult people and i've written about this many times before and spoken about it is between two sort of between 247 248 and three hours it's like a quagmire for runners. They just get stuck in there for years and years and years and can't get out of it a lot of the time. Whereas what really should be happening is if you're able to get to the low 250s and let's say where you are now, 256, but we'll, let's be conservative and say it's a 254 in real terms. The jump that you should be looking for 
in your next marathon is a 15-minute jump. So you should be looking to run 2.39 in your next marathon, I would say. Between 2.41 and 2.39, you should skip the high 2.40s. Uh, a lot of people really do get stuck in that area and then they're inching and inching. And you see people that have been training for three or four years and they might have run a, a 2.50 or a 2.51, something like that, two or three, four years later, and they're still only running 2.48 or 2.47. And the reason is, is because they're going into marathons too quickly. They're doing two marathons a year, one in the spring and one in uh, in the autumn. Instead of working on getting quicker over the 10 mile and getting the necessary speed that what they can then extend out, then they can make the bigger jump. And, that, and that's really the key is getting the necessary speed to make that bigger jump. Um, and you don't need to train any harder or put in any more miles to do that. And, and, and to me, that's that's the next step then is to get you faster over 10 mile, 10K, the half marathon, and then equip you with the necessary speed to, so that around about six minute mile pace to six, 10 pace feels pretty comfortable for you over a marathon. Okay. And you sort of cover something I was going to go into, and I think it's really interesting to sort of hear what people who broke three uh, kind of do. They sort of stay in that place. And we talked about the sort of the physical and uh, the training sort of sides. Um, but, I mean, from your experience, I mean, what are the kind of uh, mental changes that you see where someone breaks sub three or, or any other sort of target that, they can then sort of kick on with and like in terms of like positive positive and the negative but more for the mental side rather than the physical side mm, yeah, yeah okay from a from a negative side first of all if you've if somebody's just runs say uh i don't know 259 and that's around about 650 pace per mile it's hard for them to imagine themselves running a marathon at say their half marathon pace and their half marathon pace might be 630 so uh say for you now uh what was your average pace on on the day for that 256 is what is that 640 something yeah, six i should really know this yeah me too really off the top of my head but i can't my head's fried but let's <laughs> let's say it's 640 okay let's say you just yeah. bang that out in 640 okay and that 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 covers for the fact for the wind and things okay so you've yeah. dropped out of 640 so in theory your half marathon pace should be about 620 okay so what I'm talking to you about right now is really what we want to be doing is your next marathon you should be running probably about 605 pace, 610 pace. So how can we get you from, say, 640 to 65, 610 when your half marathon pace is only 620? That's a big jump, you know, in your head. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't even know if I could hold, you know, holding that for 10K is difficult. So how do I extend that out and, and get that and run a marathon at that pace? It's very hard in your head to mentally imagine that happening. And as I've mentioned before on the previous podcast, when somebody comes to me for coaching, whatever the half marathon time is, I six months later, that's their marathon pace. For me, in, in my head, how I'm working it out, that's that's the improvement, how it should work. So, so within six months, you should be running sort of uh, like a 122, but you're capable of doing that now, you see. Yeah. See what I mean? So so we've got to look at getting you faster. Um, and and there are plenty of examples of that, but it, it's it's the in somebody's head to, to see themselves running a lot faster than they can imagine and holding it for such a long time after they've just struggled to hold you know maybe 30 or 40 seconds slower per mile for 26 miles they just can't see how they can do it so that's one of the challenges mentally uh one of the positives is is that they know that if they put training in 
and they put it right in a structured and progressive way that it, it, it can surprise and it, it rewards and, and the results can come. And they can see other people who have improved and made the, the gains, like yourself. I mean, for many people, in fact, I've had a couple of people, you know, who, who, have run, who are running 440, 430 for the marathon. And they've quoted you as being an example and an inspiration to them that they've seen the progress that you've made and how you've gone from where, and your journey. And in a rel- relatively short space of time, because I know a lot of people who've run 230 marathons that started out around the 450 mark, but it took them nearly 10 years to get there. You've got there pretty quickly because you've, 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 you've been focused and driven and consistent and your training sort of layered on so that's one of the things the positives is they can see that with the work that you put in that you can get the results out if the work's smart so they can see that it, things are achievable and there are many many examples of people who have come into running late in life they've been smoking and drinking uh, and been overweight and they've, they've, they've sort of got their act together and started training and they've run really fast times. So people know that this can be done with a little bit of hard work. So I say they're the, t- the, the, the two key ones on a negative front. It's trying to imagine yourself running faster than you, you for a marathon than you can for 10K in the space of a year or faster than the half marathon. And then on the positive side, it's knowing that you can achieve great things when you put your mind to it. When I start working with you, I was the same sort of mindset you look at where you are and then you look at where you think I can go. And it's like, no, there's no way I can do it. And then we run for say over a year later and then you're like, oh, this place is a lot, your place picks up. You're just like, oh, how did that happen? And you're like, well, it's part of the process type thing. And I think now I get to the stage now where I think there's been enough evidence of the stuff that we've done before where I've improved that I just think, all right, even though I can't conceivably see this pace right now, it doesn't mean it's true. I think I say to myself when I run, I'm like, I see the work. I'm like, if John believes I can do it. I know. Why not? Just, why not just try? That's all I've got to do. Is got to try. If I give my best effort, that's all I can do. Yeah, and and the two key things here are speed and talent. You know, they're 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 two of the things. So, if I give you a session of twenty times one minute on and off, where a session that you do regularly, and I'm seeing that you're able to run, I don't know, five thirty pace or five minute pace or five fifty pace, I know that you can run a marathon at six minute mile pace with the you know with 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 the right training if somebody's struggling to run uh say 530 pace for 20 times one minute on and off then what we have to do is if they're going to get better then you you might have to look at how we're going to get them better and there are ways that you do that as well there are sessions that you can bring in for example hill sprints is a, a typical i mean everybody's with within re- as long as people haven't got problems with their achilles or in, in niggles and injuries every week most people should be doing hill sprints now that was something that we've still got in our armor with you we tried them once and you had achilles issues which you've now resolved but you've also do we need to necessarily do them right now because for example with you the the speeds there that we need to be able to achieve what we want to achieve in the next sort of year or 18 months so again you can hold back on certain things and use them and and that's part of the the secret as well is knowing which of the tools in the in the box to pull out and use at a certain time you don't put bring them all out at the same time and fight and throw them in at, at the athlete and, and and i suppose uh everything will fall apart uh and a, a really good example is uh, is is Aoife cook right now she's training for the Valencia marathon she's gone from 315 to 247 to 232 the fastest time any woman's ever run in ireland on irish soil an irish woman that is and now we're looking to get to 22630 now, what I could do is I could bring out the, the the big guns in terms of the training sessions, like four times 5K, five times 4K, 
six times three k, eight times two k. There, but the other way around, working the way up and extending out. They're sessions that you've done, but Eva hasn't done them yet because she hasn't needed to. You see, so it depends how you use them at different times with with with, with different people. For you, the by employing those sessions, um, I mean, and those those aren't my sessions, by the way. They're Albert, uh, Renato Canova's uh, sessions, but I, I modified them to suit your need and to develop your endurance. Whereas for Viva right now, they're not the right sessions to use. So it's knowing these little things and thinking, okay, what do I need to, for this person right now at this time to use? And what have I got in my toolbox that I'm going to be able to use in a year's time or two years' time to help them to continue with their improvement? Or, as I mentioned earlier, to sustain the level that they're at and hold it. Or if it's somebody who's older, is how do I stop the drifts? If somebody's 55 and they've just run a 255 marathon, how do I slow that drift from 255 that might become 330 in a year or two years and make it so they can still be breaking free when they're 58 or 59? So you, there's all these little tools in the box and you have to know and work out how to use them. And that's the art of coaching. And you know it's really, really important and, and getting that right uh, is the is a difference between success and failure with small small s and small f. Yeah, like you said, like at the beginning of this as well, I think doing some of the sessions that we did in this training block uh, with the longer runs, something we've not done before, and even the workouts you talked about there, we've done some of those, I think, yeah. previous training blocks as well. This training block was, was slightly different. So, yeah, it's just like you're saying, it's just the right things for the right time, but we're always still trying to, figure it out based on the year that we've got the races that are coming up and that sort of holding pattern it's a real minefield really so uh, that's why uh, i think it's good to have a coach rather than trying to work it out yourself yeah i mean when i i mean i stopped, I stopped running competitively i suppose three years ago and even when i was doing my own i'd plan out all my own trade I, I i did everything that i would tell people not to do don't plan your training out miles in advance and stuff I, i've got books of training programs that i've designed for myself and for other people and things but that's part of the process i suppose it's like uh, an artist or a writer you know a lot of 99% of the stuff that they write or paint or draw gets wasted. That's all the planning, you know, the warm up really. And then it's fine tuning it. Uh, so in all of the books that are sitting around my table at the moment, they're full of different sessions and workouts and programs and how to blend them together with other types of workouts and the type of runner. But invariably what it comes down to is you look at the individual and what does that individual need uh, to, to help them improve. And that's the key thing. And knowing how to do that, is the art of it really john i think we've generally covered pre during and post race thank you for coming on the runners life podcast for the third time and uh, yeah, we're getting under the three now so that's good and on to the next one but uh before we go where can people get in touch with you yeah i suppose the easiest place if anybody needs any help is to contact me via my website which is stazzestable.com uh on there there's they can see the, the guys that are in the group who my coaching and what we we do and the contact information's there that's probably the easiest way awesome john it's been great talking to you thanks for coming on the podcast no problem at all thank you for having me again marcus congratulations thank you thank you for listening to this episode of runner's life if you found value in this episode and want to support the show please share with your community post on your social media channels and encourage them to listen and subscribe if you want to support my work directly you can become a member on patreon at www.patreon.com slash a runner's life if you want to get in touch with me or see what i'm up to you can follow me on my instagram page at the marathon marcus 
Your time is valuable, so thank you for spending your time listening to this episode of a Runner's Life podcast. 